What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. I am the aforementioned Sal, along with my ever-genial co-host, Eagle One of Eagle Speak. And I'd like to welcome everybody to our kind of irregular, but on a regular, regularly irregular free-for-all uh, show where it's just Eagle One and myself. And uh, this is an opportunity, especially for those uh, usual suspects and the regulars who perhaps in the course of the last few months since our last uh, open phones, open ideas point, we haven't quite discussed a topic that you really wanted us to, um, or for just a, a couple of issues you wanted to roll that way to see if uh, Eagle One and I um, had a take that you might find interesting. This is a chance for you if you'd like. You can call in directly. Uh, we're going to live on the edge and uh, really not even screen our calls for a change. If you want to call in and ask our question directly, you can reach us at 347-308-8397, 347-308-8397. If you uh, suffer from a significant case of stage fright and you would just like to uh, come in and ask us the questions on the chat room. If you scroll down to the bottom of the show page, that's where you can uh, find the usual suspects. We'll be monitoring that in the course of the show in order to uh, see if you've got some questions you'd rather ask there, though we do like the photographs. Uh, photographs. We do like the phone calls. So uh, Eagle One, no photographs on a radio show, but besides that, uh, good afternoon. Hey, how are you? Can you hear me? I can't tell whether my phone is muted or not. Uh, no, we hear your uh, comforting dulcet tones just fine. Yeah, I so thought it, we should we should tell the listeners that we're the walking wounded today. For some reason, my Skype won't ring into Blog Talk Radio, and uh, so I'm on a cell phone, and and you're suffering from uh, nostalgia neuritis and some other uh, painful inflictions. So, yeah, uh, if the show seems a little more bizarre than usual, folks, it's just because it's more bizarre than usual. Yeah, I do. Without going into too much detail, if uh, I seem a little uh, more off than usual, maybe you won't notice. Uh, I've got some medical issues going on um, that's uh, a little distracting, but that's the great thing about radio. You you can't see me crying. Um, anyway, I wanted to kick off. Obviously, it's um, it's been the, the big surprise over the weekend, and there's a couple of different schools that uh, have come out, and I, I can see both sides of the issue, but after they are both on the table, one quickly disappears and the other one's rather solid. And that's uh, Bergdahl's, uh, Bergdahl's bargain for his family, who's uh, been a prisoner of the Taliban for quite a while. I guess the executive summary is he walked off base, got snagged, and uh, we traded five of the Haqqani Network's top players to get him back. You know, I'm real happy for his family. I'm real happy for him. But um, that's the initial flush. It's one of those emotions versus reality. And yeah, I think what this has done is it really has increased the price on the top of everybody's head because um, we had the reputation of we're not going to negotiate with you, but we will kill you. Now it's like, yeah, if we're holding somebody that's really important to you, why don't you see if you can steal one of our guys? And I don't know that uh, with some of the other things that are going on, Eagle One, whether that's really the right message we want to put out here, because the long war, regardless of what we do in Iraq, I did in Iraq and whatever we're in the process of doing in Afghanistan, um, 
you know, the war is not over when one side says it's over. The war is over when both sides say it's over. And I don't think the other side of the equation uh, uh, thinks the war is over. And we continue to put out a message of weakness, a message of submission. And, uh, you know, I, I think we're the, the first geniuses to say that, that we can't, weakness invites aggression. So I'm happy for Bergdahl's family, but for our nation and for everybody else uh, that is serving, I, um, I, I have to say I'm not too pleased with how we went about this. What's your shot there, Eagle One? Yeah, we, uh, my wife and I had a discussion about this earlier today, and it came down kind of the way you are. I mean, uh, if <laughs> a lot of it depends on the circumstances under which he left his base, how he was captured, uh, and uh, what his position has been since he's been gone. That's part one. Part two is, do we want to get in the business of negotiating with terrorists, or is it is it possible? I mean, uh, Secretary of Defense Hagel said there were some extenuating circumstances in this case, uh, which they also used, the White House also used as a reason for violation of the law, which said they're not supposed to do this without consulting Congress. So, um, you know, I, I'm kind of walking down the middle of this one where I, I'm glad to get him back, I guess, but I really don't like the idea of as you say, putting a price on every other serviceman's head that uh, you know that we're <laughs> willing to negotiate uh, to get people back uh, by releasing people that don't necessarily like us. Although we have all kinds of reassurances from the uh, country to whom they're being sent that uh, they'll keep an eye on them. It takes a while to get through some of the the partisan flacking about this, but you brought up something that um, concerns me in a larger context, is even when you strip away a lot of the, the partisan bickering and usual movements, there's been a lot of extra constitutional activity that's been going on by this administration, a lot of blatant violation of the law. I'm not an attorney, but um, there are members of Congress on both sides of the House that, uh, as we've seen in the past, when these type of notifications need to take place, they can keep a secret. Um, there are some that you know you wouldn't trust your car keys, but there are some serious individuals up there that, that do get to check in the block for consulting Congress. I, you know, I, I prefer to think about the, the info ops campaign and how this message goes on, but I guess there are some larger, more important issues inside our lifelines about this violation of law, what recourse do the other branches of government have for something like this? Because this is not the first case that a law that was passed by a co-equal branch of the government has been basically blown off with just a shrug of the shoulders. And having spent some time around a few um, uh, military JAGs and a few uh, operational plans and uh, a few civilian legal advisors coming in with any plan you have, they tell you whether what you're doing is actually legal. So another question I have is where in the course of this operation was the JAG coming along and going, uh, sir, you're being given an illegal order. Uh, is this the type of situation where that can come up? And what, what is a commander's responsibility or for that matter, a senior JAG's responsibility to go, oh, we're going to do X. Well, if we're going to do X, then Y needs to take place. My understanding, Y is not taking place, so we're going to be executing a set of orders that's in violation of U.S. law. Is that a, a black-white thing, a gray area, or is that a question that uh, um, our, our legal professionals just probably don't want to talk about? Well, um, unlike you, I am an attorney, and uh, but also like you, uh, I'm, I'm not a JAG. My experience would tell me that the the people who decided to do this somehow, uh, except for telling the commander of the uh, Guantanamo Bay facility to turn these guys loose, I don't know whether this took place in a military context. And I don't think that has really been made clear in the, in the articles I've read, whether this was you know an order from... Uh, the President of the United States to Admiral so-and-so to go do this, and Admiral so-and-so said, you know, you can't do that, sir. Or if this is 
you know, there's some other chain of command which this is following, which does not have that same um, responsibility. But I also know there are situations where um, the president can can give top cover to the chain of command, and it happens mostly, I think, in in uh, some kind of classified operations. Um, that you know, there's a presidential directive saying this is on me and I'm telling you to do this and, uh, you know, that, that can work. I, I think, I'm not sure. I don't anybody's ever challenged that. This, this, as you've said though, this administration carefully as on several occasions, carefully weighed the potential effects of, of engaging in uh, outside the line activity. And I think their, their view is that the worst case is that somebody will sue them. And by the time, but that wins its way through the uh, the uh, legal process. That these guys will be long gone, and the issue will be completely moot, and it may make great law somewhere down the path, but not while these guys are in office. Yeah, I I, I can definitely see that political calculus. I would just really like to see some military professionals go through a few vignettes of where they say no, because as officers, you don't take your oath to the President of the United States, to the executive branch. You don't make your oath to Congress or your judiciary. You make the ju- your, your oath to, uh, to the Constitution. Now, that's a pretty darn vague area. And uh, as you know, you, you, you ask an opinion of two attorneys, you get five answers. Um, but, uh, you know, an illegal order is an illegal order. Or are there th- different you know, shades of gray of illegal orders, and where do you draw that line? Um, you know, to, to quote the president on a, on a different issue, when he was a candidate for office, I guess that's a little bit above my pay grade. But uh, I'd be interested to know where that pay grade is, because even as you say, and, and, and thank goodness, we don't know all the details of this operation, nor should we. Uh, but I don't think anybody goes in, to northeast Afghanistan to uh, do a partner ex- uh, exchange without using the U.S. military. CIA has some great capabilities, um, but uh, I, I would be highly doubtful that this was uh, strictly a, uh, a CIA operation. Maybe it was, but uh, then again, way beyond my pay grade. Well, I mean, if we look at what we do know, he's not being released directly back to uh, the people that he, that, I mean, these these guys from Guantanamo are not being released directly back to um, the Taliban. They're being released to another country, which is a procedure that has been followed before, although not in connection with a prisoner swap. So I uh, I can see where they have, you know, they've they've wandered down this path. Somebody did some thinking about this, and it's it's you know the the legality of a of a notify Congress, except, and apparently there's an exception in their rule that, except in a, uh, when there's a, a need, which Secretary Hagel says there is, uh, some kind of extraordinary <laughs> circumstance, you know, well then that's your, that's your out. You didn't do anything, you didn't do anything illegal because uh, it was certified from above that there was some special circumstance. Yeah, that's the uh, the trap door situation and I can can appreciate that and I I doubt very much that the uh, the Republicans in Congress are going to raise too much a stink about this because they have been the the party that tends to defer to presidential freedom of action when it comes to uh foreign entanglement so to speak I think if uh if the political hat was, was switched over, I think you might see a little more of a ruckus about this, but unfortunately there's, or fortunately, uh, there's not a caucus on the Republican side of the House that really is going to make a stink about that. And if there's not uh, that type of desire, then uh, nothing's really going to happen. I guess we'll have to wait for uh, somebody's memoir in five or six years to see how it worked out. Well, we, we may see, uh, you know, as Depending on what again, depending on what the circumstances of this guy's departure from the base and ended up him getting captured or or whatever happened to him, uh, and I've seen a lot of speculation on on why he was uh, over the wire. Um, you know, there's going to be some some questions down the road, but it's very hard. I, I would think if you're uh, in opposition to this to the party in power, 
in the White House that, you know, are going to go to the American people and say you're against uh, getting an American out of the hands of, of terrorists, no matter what it took. You know, that's kind of a tough sell. So I think they'll keep maintain a low profile, but we'll see how it goes down the road. Yeah, it's uh, one of those just, oh, well, well, we'll see what's going on. I think the argument could be made um, amongst people who are associated with uh, the national security arena, but I think for 97% of the population, all they have to do is say, well, somebody's family got their son, brother, cousin back, and yeah. that's all that matters. We did it for the, we did it for the children. Speaking of doing it for <laughs> the children, uh, Boko Haram in, uh, in Nigeria – should we be messing around with that at all? And again, this is that one brain versus the other. Um, well, first of all, they're not our girls. Um, they're Nigeria's girls. Um, just like you can't make somebody love you, you can't make another nation care about their own citizens more than you do. You just can't do it. Um, the that part of northern Nigeria, how do you pronounce it, the Sahil, otherwise known as the transition area from the Sahara South, yeah. huge open area. Uh, I have no doubt in my mind that if we had freedom of action, we could go in and, and do what needs to be done. Uh, but um, we would be castigated and hated for it because to do something like that, pretty good chance some of the girls are going to die. Um, and then the the usual suspects will come out of the woodwork. And uh, I don't think the, the president administration has the appetite to be called those nasty names. Um, if, if good luck Jonathan doesn't want to rescue his own people, uh, he's in the middle of an, of an existential threat to his nation. And Boko Haram is just part of that. Uh, if he's not willing to, to do the hard things that need to be done when you're in a type of uh, religious, sectarian civil war like that in order to win, then, you know, he'll continue to empower and give victories to his opponents, and the bloodshed will continue. But I, I fully understand that the well-meaning people who, uh, you know, hear about almost 300 girls kidnapped from their boarding school all because all they wanted to do was to uh, to learn. But, you know, my memory is good enough that I remember right after we got through the drive up to Kandahar Valley and liberated Kabul and we just had a few forces on the ground and all the women were lifting the burkas off and, and everybody said, well, we can't just, you know, get rid of the Al-Qaeda camps and chase them into the mountains. we got to stay here and do what we didn't do after the Soviets were kicked out to help the Afghan build their people and educate their women and, you know, build a Disneyland park off in Gore Valley, whatever. Uh, you know, there's that, that, that instinct to want to do that, just like we did in Somalia. Um, you know, well-meaning people want to do good things, but this is a, a, a world that doesn't work that way. And uh, Well, I, yeah. in, in the context of Nigeria, where I was reading earlier, that they spend about, about 1%, I think, of their gross national product, product on, on education, you know, I mean, it's a hugely corrupt country, and they don't spend much on the infrastructure. They don't spend much on the on the population. Uh, as a result, they have a, a large chunks of uneducated young people. You know, there's a ball, Correct. just like in a lot of other uh, other countries. You know, and they're they're kind of leaving themselves open unless they start taking some of that oil money, and they have plenty of that, uh, and spending it to improve the lives of their people. The people are going to get the message that you know. They really don't care about us. They care about lining their own pockets and, and uh, their lifestyle. But as far as uh, those of us in the heat, now, and that seems to be, a, 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 I'm probably uh, uh, several years out of phase on the, on the where guerrilla uh, or in, uh, indigenous uh, um, rebel forces come from, but it seems to me that there's going to be an attraction to some people who are, who are being told that these problems are because uh, – you know, of, of the corrupt government and the U.S. help and all that stuff, and they're just going to, you know, that's the kind of movement that you don't really don't want to get started in a country the size of, of Nigeria with the population Nigeria has, which I think is a couple hundred million people, if I'm not mistaken. Yep, and, and, and I'm, I'm very hesitant on this also because of the, uh, you know, welcome to the, the first Clinton administration, late Bush 41 administration. You know, the CNN effect. Okay, you got... 
200 and some odd change girls in Nigeria. Uh, there, a map was put out recently um, of the whole Sahel area, southern Sahara, where we have mostly special forces and enablers deployed around there to help local forces. You know, where do you draw your line for your tragedy? Uh, you know, let's roll the clock back to Darfur. The genocide still played taking place in Darfur. I remember when there were discussions of NATO doing something in Darfur. A friend of mine, a lieutenant colonel in the Italian army, who ironically grandfather fought in Ethiopia in World War II, you know, he went to Ethiopia um, back in the last decade to start doing some of the initial work where NATO was looking going in there. But NATO looked over at Big Daddy USA and said, "Well, you're going to be giving most of the forces, aren't you?" And after we just sat there and blinked and uh, looked at our toes for a little bit, that whole evaporated. So if if the you know hashtag diplomacy of bringing home our girls, if that's our trigger point to to go and chase dragons around the southern edge of the Sahara, uh, are we going to go join the uh, the French in Mali, Central Africa Republic? Uh, are we going to uh, go in at the tip of the bayonet? and tell um, the, the democratically elected president of Uganda that he needs to let the hundreds of homosexuals that they've imprisoned out. Uh, we're going to go into the border areas again. You know, you know, where do you draw that line? Uh, I just well, think that's, we need to be it, very, very careful. Yeah, that's always been my question about these humanitarian interventions, which many people, um, the more liberal persuasion seem to be in favor of. They're not really, you know, they're they're willing to spend our blood and money to to engage in humanitarian interventions, without thinking about the possible uh, consequences of some of those actions. I mean, um, as you note, that area uh, of Nigeria is more uh, is in a rough area. It's a rough neighborhood, an area that mm-hmm. that the that the other people who live in neighboring countries or some of the people who live in neighboring countries would like to, to, uh, to uh, combine into a larger, a larger mass um, and, and, you know, have their, you know, they're already burning Christian churches and killing Christians and stuff like that. So there's a, there's kind of, you know, it's just a really tough area. And the, the, uh, this, this particular organization uh, just, you know, it, it, it's one thing to kidnap the girls and and all that, but then and then to announce on a YouTube video that you're going to going to sell them into slavery and then go ahead and do it with at least a few of the girls, that uh, you know that I can see why people get get uh, you know their trigger does get pulled on that, but um, the, the consequences of of involvement um, or not, you know, I mean, if we don't get involved, then you're everybody fears another Rwanda. If we do get involved, uh, Lord knows where it leads. So. A tough call. Yeah, unlike Rwanda, which is you know the size of a couple of American counties strapped together, um, you know they killed hundreds of thousands of their neighbors there. You get a country like Nigeria. Um, over in the chat room, Maggie put in 168 million. I'm too lazy to fact check her. I, I I'll trust Maggie because if you don't, she'll hurt me. Um, you know that's that's a whole different uh, scale. If you can kill 800,000 people in sectarian violence in Rwanda, if you have the right trigger and the right desire, now admittedly they aren't as densely packed as they are, then you know the Nigeria bloodbath is just almost unimaginable. But here's the thing for the young kiddies, and we have to be careful what we establish as well, is sub-Saharan Africa, you outlined very well, extremely corrupt except for a few small islands. For instance, uh, Botswana, right north of South Africa. It's probably the, the, the best governed country in Southern Africa. If such a huge uh, percentage of their population did not have AIDS, uh, their economy would really do well. You can, there's some, some great graphs out there of the, your average lifespan in Botswana. It climbed and climbed and climbed until HIV grabbed hold, and it's just, just plummeted. It all has to do with HIV, and, and that takes people out in their prime. South Africa, the ANC, each election they lose a little bit of their percentage of power. Zuma's corrupt. Um, you know, South Africa has some potential. And there are a few other ones like Mozambique that are trying. Angola's trying. Uh, so there are places in Africa we can help out. But when you combine the structural problems in that part of the world with the demographics that you have, here in about 15, 20 years, you know, 168 
million Nigerians become 275 million Nigerians. Uh, the economy is not growing enough to give those people. Um, that's a decreasing standard of living, growing population in a non-unified country. And the future looks a little spotty for that part of the world. So, you know, before we start putting bases and engaging it, uh, be very be need to be very careful about how closely tied in do we want to be in that part of the world because it's really not our fight. Yeah, well, it's uh, that I guess that puts me in mind of the uh, president's recent speech at West Point where he kind of laid out a strategy. Uh, you know, we're going to lead or something without getting hurt. I can't remember exactly what the words were. Leave from behind? (laughs) Uh, Well, no, I didn't say leave from behind for a change. I mean, he did say that that we would uh, act unilaterally if we had to, to protect our allies, which I thought was kind of a nice shot across the bow of China. But I have (laughs) have more more questions about about uh, what that means in situations like like uh, Nigeria and, and some of those places where it's uh, you know we've got there are human reasons for to, to do humanitarian interventions but and then I'll just kind of, you kind of trail off from there there's a lot there's a big but at the end of all that so but but how about his how about his did he update his previous discussion at uh, West Point that you uh, have harped on for uh, for a few years now. Yeah, anybody that's gone over to my home blog, um, and I put some other stuff over at Breitbart when I used to write there, over there a couple of years ago. But, um, yeah, the December 09 West Point speech that, for all intents and purposes, uh, announced our strategic withdrawal, timed withdrawal retreat, however you want to refer to it. The latest West Point speech, though, I I, I started to write about it, and uh, to to be blunt, because I can't be on internet radio, I just said to hell with it. I just don't have the emotion. You know, people should watch the watch the tape. Better than that, read it. It was a canned it was a canned campaign speech. There was no enthusiasm, no excitement. Um, the, the the whole premise of it is just just depressing. There's really nothing we can do about it. And like I like to tell people, um, there's no reason to get upset about it. This is what the American people voted for twice. And agree with it or disagree it, it just is. Um, And unfortunately, what I think we're going to have happen here is we're creating the conditions and setting an environment that another president, whether it's a, a Hillary Clinton or a Rand Paul or my buddy Scott Walker, or somebody else who'll come out of the woodwork um, is going to have to fix it because there's no fixing going on here. There's pushing to the right, there's slapping a Band-Aid, there's taking a couple of Tylenol, but there's no real fixing of problems. About the only place that our vacillation has played out pretty well and I'll agree with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Um, you know, the, the president's policy in Syria has been pretty good. I think you could boil down the president's Syria policy as let them kill each other. Because um, real, that's really not our fight. My take has always been with uh, with uh, Syria that if, if Turkey's not willing to put a division into the north, then why on God's green earth should we be willing to do anything? Um, it's just not our fight. But about the uh, about the the president's West Point speech um, and what followed, you know, the 90, <laughs> 9,800 people on the ground in a country that side, that's enough to run Bagram and to have a few support facilities in there, and that's about it. Um, I just hope they have enough airlift to get those 9,800 out. So we don't have to take extraordinary measures to get through Jalalabad so we have one person come through the Khyber Pass on the back of a horse because that's just a stupid number. Well, it, uh, I mean, it, the foreign policy, uh, to make sense, has to be consistent. And I guess he's been consistent in sort of a way that I would disagree with, but, it's, you know, he's, he's, his lead from behind policy has been uh, the way he approaches it. And... Uh, every now and then he kind of makes 
threats to break out of that, you know, the, the various red lines, the, uh, and, and, but then, and the, you know, the pivot to the, to, uh, Asia. And I thought it was kind of funny, uh, you, uh, that, uh, secretary of defense Hegel was in Singapore and gave a speech, a presentation along with uh, the Japanese prime minister, Abe, who, you know, they were both pinging on China for their China's uh, reckless, basically reckless disregard of international boundaries in the South China sea. And I thought that was a lot stronger than what the president said. So I don't know if he's made Hegel his point man for, for strong um, uh, international uh, activity or if, if uh, Hegel's off on his own uh, and shows some of the strength that some people said he had all along and, and it's called uh, China on their, you know, that may, are they just a bully and he's calling their bully bluff or is, is this part of a, a strategy out of the uh, out of the administration? Well, uh, you know, if, if, if we're really going to be focusing our attentions elsewhere, um, it's not sub-Saharan Africa. It's the Western Pacific. Now, you look at that arc of economic interest that we have that goes from the tip of Japan all the way down to Australia, the Straits of Malacca, you know, though I think we forget about it on a regular basis, we're a mercantile republic. Both directly and indirectly, we we thrive on good, stable global trade. Um, and you know what China does on mainland Asia uh, in, to their own people is really none of our business. But when you look around with our neighbors, especially Japan, uh, South Korea, I really like the uh, rapprochement however you pronounce that in French, Claude, help me out, um, with Vietnam. Uh, I think that's in good shape. I think we could, and I think we are in the background, you know, continuing to whisper in Taiwan's ear, we're still your buddy, we just can't tell anybody. They're kind of our, our secret, secret lover down the street. Um, you know, that's, that's a good strategy, and part of that is is to make sure that China knows that you know, be a bully if you want to, but be careful. Be careful what you're doing. Uh, I know we had an incident um, where China rammed a Vietnamese vessel. The, the Vietnamese have hated China for millennia. Uh, the Japanese and the Chinese have never liked anybody, each other. The Koreans have never liked them. Uh, the Filipinos used to not care until recently. Nobody really likes China that I'm aware of, except for maybe Burma, Myanmar, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I think that's to our advantage. And if you have um, Vietnam that we could support, um, they know that Japan has a support, Korea to its support, then maybe that will stop China from doing something a little stupid getting in the, the way of the sea lines of communications on the Western Pacific. Um, I think the, the, the day of us considering the Pacific, our lake, is long gone. But uh, the first island chain east still pretty much is. And I think a, a strong Japan is, um, is part of that. Some people are not comfortable with Abe and some of the changes he's making about uh, making Japan a little more mil militaristic. That, it doesn't bother me at all. Um, I, I am not worried about a rearmed Japan. I'm just, I'm just not. It's a, it's a hugely different country than it was in the mid 20th century. We should give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, they're, you know, they're quasi Western in many regards, um, but demographically and philosophically, they're not an expansionist power. But boy, if, um, if they spent three to four percent of their GDP on the military. <laughs> that 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 would that would be a way to to keep Japan uh, keep China inside the first island chain and uh, finding other ways to get the resources they need. Yeah, Japan has has recently uh, offered gunboats to both Vietnam and the Philippines to assist them in their uh, national security interests. And then I I saw something the other day that apparently they were look the Australians were looking at Japanese submarines as a as a possible. Uh, I can't remember Jeff, if they actually had a deal or they were just looking, but uh, that that I'm not as familiar with Japanese submarines as I should be. But I gather they're pretty competent. Um, they're very boats. good. 
They're very, very good. <laughs> yeah, the Japanese diesel submarines, for those that have played with them, um, yeah, yeah, they, the Australians could do a lot worse than... Um, well, and, and have done worse with, the, with their current boats. The co- were, uh... <laughs> yeah, that, that, that didn't go to... Yeah, speaking of Australia, that that's... Let's talk about what the Australians have done interesting. I kind of brought it up obliquely when we were talking about Africa. But, uh, you know, one of the great things of this century is there are parts of the world that have stable to gently declining populations, Japan, Western Europe, Australia, um, Singapore, other other places, that... um, as the nasty parts of the world have growing populations and shrinking per capita GDP, you know the push for to immigrate that that natural human instinct for those people. Uh, you saw it recently with another rush of the gates at one at one of um, Spain's little outpost in northern Africa again, and they've just cleaned up some places around Khan. Uh, uh, with migrants trying to get into the UK. I think that's going to be a growing, growing story. Australia just really ratcheted up their immigration laws where if they intercept you trying to immigrate illegally by sea, not only are they going to send you home, you will never have a chance to ever immigrate to uh, Australia. They'll put your name and your biometrics in the system and they don't care what you do 10, 20 years from now, you'll never get in there. So they really have ratcheted down in the lucky country, uh, which is smart for them uh, because when you, you reach a certain tipping point, you can lose uh, the character of your country if you just let yourself get flooded by um, by immigrants from cultures that are uh, completely opposite from where your yours is. There's one thing to have a few percentage of your population, but when you get... Uh, too much, then the whole nature of your country changes and you lose your countries. And we're already seeing that in a few places in Europe. I think the Europeans are going to have a huge, more of a huge problem with that simply because of the ease of, of, of access. And as a lot of them will probably go, if they're smart, in the direction of Japan, which pretty much lets nobody in except for a few Koreans. Um, and I also re- read recently that even Korea uh, in the rural areas, um, a lot of the farmers are uh, marrying wives from Vietnam, for instance, um, simply because the, the South Korean women, like their Japanese counterparts, they want to be urban. Uh, they don't want to live out there in the countryside. So I think that the, the, the pressures of immigration and the reaction to it is going to be an interesting um, indirect national security story for the next uh, few decades as does that difference in demographics between the first world steady or declining population and the poorer parts of the world, the expanding population to mass density kind of reaches a, a tipping point. Which direction it goes to, yeah, I don't know. Well, you, you, you've been following the, uh, the recent elections in, in, the, uh, in Europe and EU and, and uh, Germany and France. Oh, yeah. The... Uh, they always call them right wing, but let's say let's say the more conservative uh, elements of those political structures seem to be um, gaining speed. What what does that uh, hold for Europe's future? If that if that were to, I mean obviously I don't think I mean even the Germans apparently the uh, the uh, more to the right than the Christian Democrats uh, groups have, have popped up. I think I and, think you know me, you brought. Let me, let me, yeah. Let me throw one more thing in there. And apparently the Russians have been actively involved in creating, like in, I think it was in, uh, was in Hungary, in creating parties that, that trot around in Nazi-like uniforms. So there's, yeah. there's a whole lot of stuff going on out there that uh, is really interesting if you start taking a look at it. Yeah, it's just another way to try to destabilize Western Europe. But I think and you brought up a good point. I think the, the description of right wing is kind of uh, a lot of our definitions that we continue to carry over from the 20th century need to go because a lot of these organizations, most notably the National Front, I mean, they have more 
in common with the left wing than anything else. They're not free trade. They're protectionists. They're big government. Uh, but um, I think sometimes in the in the U.S. they they use American terms simply because it's it's a way to be lazy and a way to take some unpopular people and uh, some unpopular visuals in Europe and use them to smear domestic uh, politics here for for other purposes. Uh, but What's interesting about the movement for, I, will, I call them nationalist parties, it's a, it's a nationalist movement, is unlike the last time nationalism really got rolling in Europe, they weren't satisfied with their internal borders. These nationalist parties, except for the Hungarians that still have issues of parts of Romania that used to be Hungarian, um, most of these nationalist parties in Europe, they're internally focused. And a lot of their internal focus has to do with the fact that, not unlike what happened in the Weimar Republic, is the main line center-left, center-right political parties became more alike with each other than they became in tune with their own people. And the, the people of the countries do not feel like they're democratic institutions, i.e. in their political parties, which in a parliamentary system are much more important than they are in the way our system is set up. And when they, when good people who are desperate feel like they're being ignored, they will go someplace else. And where they're going is they're going to the national front. They're going to Gert Wilder's uh, party. They're going uh, to other places. I think the one exception to... Um, whether you're talking about the, the National Front or you're looking at the Australian people, the Austrian People's Party, excuse me, or was it Jobbik over in Hungary. Uh, one exception to these insurgent parties is UKIP, the UK Independence Party, and Nigel Farage. Uh, that's strictly um, economic and national interest. I don't think you could come anywhere close to putting them in line with the National Front that has a little bit of a smell of jackboot about it. Um, but it, the, the UKIP, I think, is a perfect example of um, an insurgent party in a country whose main political parties refuse to address legitimate issues that well-meaning voters um, in those countries want addressed. UKIP specifically um, is not integrating with the rest of the European Union and immigration. Uh, the conservative party when they came in, you know, talked a good talk about limiting immigration from non-EU countries, but just never did what it said it did. And that that is, from what I've seen, is probably um, a large part of why UKIP uh, has gained so much power, plus the fact with the Euro crisis, uh, they want somebody who's going to push back to stop um, Britain from becoming more and more integrated with what most not most Brits, but a lot of Brits see as a broken European um, experiment. Well, speaking of ex- interesting experiments, is is France going to go through uh, with the Mistral sale, the, the big, uh, what is it, LHA equivalent or LPD equivalent, to uh, to Russia? Yeah. You know, full disclosure here, I love the French. I really do. Um, I like Paris a lot. I'd rather, if you force me to live in a big city, I'd live in Paris over New York anytime, anyplace, anywhere. I'd live in Paris over London in a heartbeat. Um, but there's some things about France that just drive me batty. And the French, the French politicians... I don't I don't know whether they represent the French people uh, or not, but um, if they go through, in spite of all of what happens, selling those ships to the Russians, uh, they've just prostituted themselves. Uh, you know, we're just arguing over you know what is the price. Uh, there's no reason why a nation who um, wants to help secure the best fruits of the Enlightenment would after the first change in borders by the force of arms in Europe since World War II took place, would, within a year, turn over significant military... Those Mistrals are nice. Nice ships, very capable ships. We'll turn that over to the Russians, because let's be blunt, those aren't defensive weapons. 
those are power projection weapons. Uh, I, I just think it would be the height of irresponsibility uh, of the French political and uh, industrial elites to go through with that sale. I'd much rather have them sell them to Brazil or Chile. Hey, go on. You still there? <laughs> uh, Eagle One, we uh, things have broken up a bit. Why don't you go ahead and uh, uh, dial back in? Uh, for some reason, he's on south on us, but we'll wait for Eagle One to come back in. And hey, we got another, uh, still another 15 minutes left on our kind of open, and nobody interesting has called in. If you want to call in, because we've been ignoring you in the chat room, uh, this area code three four seven three zero eight eight three nine seven three four seven. Three zero eight eight three nine seven. Lee, I've seen you in the chat room there as well. I know you want to come in and tell us how great the joint high-speed vessel is. It's been hanging out in northeast Florida. Um, okay, here's Eagle One. Let's bring him back. Eagle One, how you doing? Yeah, I'm still here. I can't get anything to work. So it must be bad weather somewhere in the world. Hey, let's let's, uh, shift over to one of our our favorite micro-topics here. I don't know. I've been kind of cackling like um, Almighty Tim from the search for the Holy Grail over the last few months as Big Navy has put out the, you know, tell us us what type of frigate you would buy. (laughs) What are the alternatives we can have here? After so many years of saying we don't need frigates, we don't need frigates, we don't need frigates, now they're they're looking something uh, that they would like to see what the alternatives are besides LCS. Which, and back me up here, because you were of a more cognizant age than I was when this took place, the, the much maligned and sometimes loved Oliver Hazard Perry class frigate, that was something that came across pretty darn fast, too, from a developmental point of view that Zumwalt, pretty much said, okay, we'll take this compromise, we'll do this, we'll do that, now build them. Um, do you think we might have something radical like that take place, or do you think the uh, um, the financial conditions are such that, you know, even though the mid-70s was not the best financial situation in the world either, that we might actually see a little more capable ship come down the, uh, uh, down the way besides LCS with this look at alternatives? Yeah, I, there was an interesting uh, news note that uh, Sam Legrand, Legrand, whatever his name is, at uh, Naval yeah. Institute News put out about uh, they were going to reduce, with, the, with some of the, the uh, DDGs, they were going to reduce the um, amount of money they were going to spend on upgrading some of those and free up a bunch of money. So, not all, you know, they would still be, uh, some of them would still be limited um, ballistic missile defense capable, but others would get the new improved radar and some other equipment. And, you know, they're, so they're going to save several hundred million dollars. And I started thinking, well, why would you do that? Unless you, uh, unless you had a, an idea that you wanted to do, uh, spend some money on something other than these, these uh, LCS things. But, you know, in order to do that, they have to kill LCS somehow. They can't, and they've, they've committed to 32 uh, I don't. There must be some magic number that will make the politicians happy, but they better get on it in a hurry because it takes, as we know, years to build ships. And uh, there are enough. I mean, if it were me, I, you know, I, I'm not a big fan of Oliver Hazard Perry because uh, for a variety of reasons, but they're better than the LCS in a lot of ways because you know they're yeah. just like when just like we upgunned the old uh, gearing class and Fletcher class destroyers, they became much better ships. Um, you know, there are ways to improve uh, existing hauls that are already proven and just, and just you know, to the extent you can, put on uh, different, uh, better weapon systems without having to reinvent the wheel with, uh, with the, uh, like the LCS. And, and, you know, we could always go with our, our good buddy, I think it was Lee, who was always in favor of these uh, joint... Uh, uh, high-speed vessels, you know, that is a good haul that works. It's not a, it's not a, a warfighter haul for a variety of reasons, but maybe something along those lines could be could be set up, and we could, uh, you know, that was the original theory behind the LCS before we went crazy with uh, 
with some of the uh, ideas we're going to have all these fancy uh, component parts which we'll be able to load them up with. Well, and, you know, Lee, Lee just made a comment over in the chat room. Uh, he, he was just on Spearhead last Wednesday, and uh, she got underway for the Southern Partnership Station with 512 tons of cargo, 220 persons in addition to uh, 30 crew, is scheduled to do both UAV and you know aerostat ops later, and it kind of goes into what you're talking about. They're not upgrading all of the um, uh, Oliver Hazard Perrys. You don't need a, a fleet of, dare I say, Ferraris. When you can, <laughs> it's okay to have some Fords up there. I, I always said, you know what? I can convert a Lexus into a tractor, and I, I can I can put my cotton in in a Lexus if I want to spend the money to modify it, and it'll it'll do it just fine. With a, with a, with enough uh, angle iron and welding, but is that really the best use of a Lexus? Are you better off for keeping the Lexus to go to church on Sunday and then go buy you a good Kubota to go do everything else you want to do? Um, yeah, and, our, our, our 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 Turkish correspondent notes that the Royal Australian Navy and the uh, and the Turkish Navy have, have they, you know they've invested a lot of money in their Fig Sevens and they've got some really nice ships. Uh, it wouldn't be a bad idea to learn something from our allies every now and then. Well, because they have a little bit of a, of a different economic stress model, and, you know. And there are there are some issues with the Oliver Hazard Perry class, and you know, I'm not advocating rebuilding them or anything like that. But I think it really was a huge lost opportunity, um, and it's one of the things that Australia their upgrades had some problems. Um, but a lot of the, the problems and the costs are just had to do with economies of scale. But if you're going to upgrade in, instead of small, single-digit ships, you said, you know what, that's an interesting program. We can fix this and that. We're going to do it at 25 ships. Your your economies of scale shrink um, kind of significantly. I just hope that whatever we come up with with our sub-9,000-ton service ship, it's not a jacked-up LCS. That's the Lexus plow in the field. Uh, you know, then you have that huge plant that's designed to go real fast that now can't go real fast because it's got all this extra weight on it. And your semi-planing monohole is just pushing water around. Uh, you know, we just need to suck it up. Barn design? I don't know. Um, I think our, our folks at, at, at Cox and Gibbs have a couple of options. But, you know, the, the nation that, that built the fleet of World War II and during the uh, economic problems of the 20s and 30s, did some great developments. I'm sure with the right leadership and reorganization, um, we we could we could produce something just fine. I got confidence in it. Yeah. Well, one, thing, one thing I don't have confidence know. in though is I don't, and I, I know this is unpopular for some of our readers, but I, do, I I don't have confidence that our present Secretary of the Navy is the person to make it happen. Well. You know, the, the the problem with the LCS was they decided it needed to go really, really fast. And, um, you know, I, I appreciate the need for speed, but but there are, that, that gives you um, difficulties in ship design that lim- are limiting factors in, in other areas. And uh, I, don't, I don't think we've done a good job sorting that out yet. So I think, we, you know, what they need mainly is you know, like a like the general board would do lay out the characteristics you want uh carefully and and use you know if we're going to have small expendable ships and they don't need to be the size of the LCS they need to be small expendable boats kind of like those uh ambassador class uh, missile boats we're sending over to Egypt and uh and then have a different class of ship for your frigates which could be uh, the same speed as LCS or whatever Yep, and I think whatever we go to, um, and from what I've read, this is the direction they're going in. Somebody needs to lock the good idea fairy away in a closet somewhere and and triple lock it. Um, It needs to be mature technology, established technology, et cetera, et cetera. None of these, well, so-and-so has promised that this will be ready for IOC, um, within two years, and the first hole is going to come in three years. So why don't we just plan everything around what the Good Idea Fairy says we should really have on this ship? Uh, you know, Lucy meet Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown, Lucy, here's a football. We don't need to take that chance again because uh, we, we've, we, 
<laughs> we don't need to be having this discussion about whatever replaces it. So I think we're actually going in that direction, and there's plenty of good proven technology right now that's mature and floating around in our fleet and the fleets of other navies. We can produce a very capable and usable uh, platform that gives uh, the uh, combatant commanders the ability to do what they need to do. Yeah, uh, you know, there's there was a really good article. I can't remember where I saw it, but uh, about how the F-35. And we learned to use the F-35 properly, and we've talked about it on this show several times. That that instead of just being a 10 or 11 or 12 carrier force, uh, we, we have a, a substantial aircraft at sea. Um, you know, on different on the different uh, amphibious currently amphibious ship type platforms that can carry the F thirty five. Yeah, I think um, some smart people will find a way to inventively do that. But you know, there is something uh, economy as a scale wise with a a large deck carrier though that uh, um, when you get when you get too much smaller. You're kind of limited, but they are good for, for, for limited ops. Um, I'm not as big of a fan as others of completely getting rid of the big deck. Uh, I would be much more interested in the fact that we go back to having some big deck carriers that have some reach to them, that we have the ability to uh, go back to long-range strike that our decks full of light fighters really can't do anymore. But I don't see anything in the pipeline that's really going to enable that. So we're just going to have to live with bringing our carriers a little closer to um, to, to where the danger is, especially with a quasi-island nation like we are. If you want to project power overseas, unless you have really good basing agreements nearby, you know, the carrier is really going to be the only way to do it because our forces are so addicted to air cover in one way or another. Um, the the F-35, I think we might actually see the F-18 uh, have a little longer life than we think uh, if or when that finally reaches the fleet. I hope the smart people that are working on the Charlie variant um, make it make it work the way it wants to. I know I've been, uh, I've been violating my own rule about wishing, hoping um, with the F-35, but that, that pretty much is my default option with the F-35 in spite of a lot of the issues that have come up about it. I'm wishing and hoping that it all works out because if the F-35 turns out to be a lemon, we, uh, we're we in a heap of trouble. It's not like it was back when, when you were a Lieutenant JG where you looked out on a carrier deck and you had uh, F-4s, A-7s, A-6s, A-4s, um, another carrier over there instead of A-4s had A-1s. You had a pretty nice tool bo- toolbox. So if Scenario X came around, you probably had something that, that worked a lot better. Um, and nowadays, we don't have that diverse toolbox to uh, be able to respond to the unexpected. We have a, um, a very limited gene pool of, of tools that we can use out there, which is, uh, I guess, is good from an economist's point of view. But from a warfighting point of view, I think that uh, has a lot of assumptions and risks that they go into it that uh, really didn't exist before. Oh, and I forgot to mention we used to have, what else were on those flight decks? We had KA-3s, um, EA-3s, S-3s, E-2s, all sorts of good diverse stuff on the deck. Uh, don't have that anymore. Eagle One, I think I think we lost you again. No. <laughs> going once, going twice. No. Oh, there you go. Thought I, I shocked you with my with my brilliant insight that made you speechless. That's true. That's true. Um, hey, we're coming to the end of the show. What have you got coming up <laughs> in your future? Are you going to make any book signings? <laughs> Um, I don't think I'm going to be going anywhere for a few months. Um, I, my, uh, my, my summer and probably early fall is, uh, is shot uh, for a variety of ways. Well, I'll find out more this week. Uh, 
for the listeners here who, who read my home blog and my other things, if my writing seems a little light and limited over the next few months, it's not because I've lost interest. Um, it's just that I'm physically not able to do it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that, my, my, my goal for this summer is to uh, uh, get healthy as soon as I can. That's a good goal. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, I appreciate everybody who joined us live there in the chat room, even though you all had uh, had a little bit of stage fright, didn't call in. But we like to have our little talk fest. As many of y'all, uh, some of y'all know, before and after the show, Eagle One and I pontificate quite a bit. And sometimes we go, wow, we should have brought that up during the show. So this is what our little, uh, little free-for-alls are for. Yep. Thanks, folks, for dropping by. And uh, we'll see you next week. Yep. Thanks, everybody. We'll talk to you next week. And uh, as always, if you have some good ideas for the show that you really would like us to do, pop us an email. Until then, have a great Navy day. have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.